0: Hello and welcome to Over the Outrage, where we will be subverting the outrage industrial complex one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brittany, and I'm here with you. I'm recording this on a Sunday evening from the great state of Minnesota, where it is currently negative 15 or something or other outside. I'm sure it is quite, uh, quite cold for you guys down in the southern part of the United States right now as well. I hear they're getting ice as far down as Houston and San Antonio. Um, so y'all down there, stay safe. I know uh, you're not used to dealing with it. So um, stay warm, wear your layers, and uh, hope you hope you can make it through. Well, I'm here on a bonus episode to discuss the uh, acquittal of former President Donald J. Trump in the most bipartisan impeachment conviction vote ever, where there were 57 votes to convict and 43 votes to acquit. Uh, In a Senate impeachment trial, it does take uh, a two-thirds vote for conviction, which is 67 votes. Um, there was never going to be 17 Republicans who were going to to vote um, uh, against the former president here. I, I think, uh, you know, as some commentators said, I think the pre- former president's attorneys could have gotten before the Senate and just recited Green Eggs and Ham a few times and They would have had enough to to claim some procedural reason for for why they couldn't vote to convict. And and that's what we saw. But we did see seven Republicans courageously stand up and and vote for conviction. And these weren't all, you know, everybody we were expecting. Um, Bill Cassidy, uh, a Republican from Louisiana... Um, he stood up on this vote and, and made the courageous vote to convict, and, and he's from a very red state. Um, so I, I think there's some good to take out of this. Um, you know, I, I think there was um, a moment there where Jamie Raskin, the, the lead manager for the House impeachment prosecutors, um, did make the right call to try to call Uh, Congresswoman Herrera Butler from Washington, Um, and I think also they probably made the right call ultimately to just admit her her statement into the record uh, rather than trying to delay the trial further uh, to get her on the record. And the reason I say that is um, there was an interesting vote uh you may have if you were watching you may have noticed that Lindsey Graham flipped and became a vote in favor of witnesses uh after originally voting no once he saw it was clear uh several republicans had had voted yes to hear them um and the reason he did that is there's an arcane parliamentary rule that allows only members who voted in favor of the motion? Uh, to to raise a motion to reconsider um, these motions to reconsider can kind of basically be made to continue to to hold up the process, um, and it would have given him an opportunity to to kind of make this blow up in Democrats' faces and, and slow down their ability to um to move forward with the Biden agenda uh on economics and um getting fe- folks confirmed into the administration so there really was no no good answer on how to do this and congresswoman Herrera Butler a republican from Washington a freshman you know deserves credit for for putting out her statement the other night and, and making sure that you know her evidence was heard and and wasn't left behind and you know furthermore i think you know the house managers they made their case um let's not let's not pretend more witnesses would have made this case better the case was very strong um even mitch mcconnell in his speech after voting to acquit made it very clear he basically repeated the House manager argument that indeed the president assembled the mob, he incited the mob, and he let the mob run rampant over Congress and, and did nothing. And and so the point of that, I think, was that, that McConnell's pretty serious, that he does believe that um this can possibly be dealt with in the criminal justice system. Um, I remain a little bit skeptical if that will be enough. Um, but at the same time, I, I think, you know, him making that statement, um, onto the record very clearly, uh, helps ensure that this acquittal vote doesn't get seen as, uh, uh, as, uh, you know, he did nothing wrong, um and to, to kind of send a signal to prosecutors around the country who might have cases in various states where he pressured officials to try to change the vote and, and other things like that. This is a signal to those prosecutors, like, you can move ahead and, and you're not going to be seen as, as making a political move here that, you know, you now have the go ahead. Um, so, so there is something there. Um and while I worry what signal this sends um to future presidents, um, you know, ultimately it does remain up to we the people, uh, to step up when faced with a wannabe dictator. Um, and we have to just know that this it's very unlikely that the Senate will ever save us. Um, because if the Senate was unwilling to convict in this egregious of a case where seven Republicans were willing to vote against their own party um, on a, on an impeachment conviction, um, the most ever, the previous most ever, was one, Mitt Romney voting for conviction in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, so that was so... Donald Trump now has the distinction of being the only president to have bipartisan bipartisan conviction votes against him uh, in in two trials. So I think we did send a signal to the future that while we maybe didn't have quite enough people to, to get a conviction, that clearly the American people don't stand for that. Um, but we're going to have to remain vigilant, and many cycles to come, because it's also pretty clear that uh, some forty percent of the country kind of is has said it's kind of okay that that what happened is is you know no one's fault, um, and and that's that's a scary proposition for our future. But it also means that there's nearly sixty percent of us who um want to stand on the side of democracy there were some real heroes in this whole saga um you know folks like the Secretary of State of Georgia who was under great pressure to change those results and and stood by uh the law and his oath um so we should celebrate those moments and not let those get lost in in the sea of darkness out there and the doom-scrolling that is the Twitterverse. Um, And, you know, I think it's funny that as undemocratic uh, of an institution as the Senate is, um, you know, the votes kind of came down close to what the American people feel on conviction. Uh, The recent polling I had seen out... Showed between you know fifty six and fifty eight percent felt like th- there should be a conviction here, and and we got fifty seven out of a hundred votes for conviction, so fifty seven percent. So it does look like you know the will of America was shown and is evidenced in that vote. Um, before I before this show completes, I do want to say um, that the House managers did the best they could do. If you want to be mad at Democrats thinking that that it's their fault, that they could have done more, um, you know, you're free to feel that way, but, you know, ultimately they had to weigh and balance the political costs of continuing to drag this out, um, versus wrapping it up and making sure that the historical record reflected what happened and and that they did so in in a way that i think was very clear um and i think was best wrapped up by representative joe Nagoose, a 36 year old uh, democrat from the second district of colorado the boulder area um i really think he spoke for our generation, um, those of us who are, you know, I'm about to turn 41. I'll, you know, age myself here. Um, those of us who are in our mid 40s and younger, um, who are looking for something more out of our government um, and for it to live up to its ideals, I think he spoke to that. And I'm going to end the show by playing his closing argument. It's about 15 minutes long. I think everybody should hear it. I hope you'll stick around and listen to it. And I will be coming back for a regular episode that should be dropping Thursday. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. And without further ado... Representative Joe Neguse.
1: You've heard my colleague, Manager Dean, go through the overwhelming evidence that makes clear that President Trump must be convicted and disqualified for his high crime. I'm not going to repeat that evidence. It speaks for itself. Earlier in this trial, you might recall a few days ago uh, that I mentioned my expectation that President Trump's lawyers might do everything they could to avoid discussing the facts of this case. And I can understand why. I mean, the evidence that all of us presented, that Manager Dean just summarized, is pretty devastating. And so rather than address it, the President has offered up distractions, excuses, anything but actually trying to defend against the facts. They said things like, President Trump is now a private citizen, so the criminal justice system can deal with him. Or that we haven't set a clear standard for incitement. They talked a lot about due process. And that all politicians say words like fight. I'd like to take a minute to explain why each of those Distractions are precisely that, distractions, and why they do not prevent in any way the Senate from convicting President Trump. Number one, every president is one day a private citizen again. So, I mean, the argument that because President Trump has left office, he shouldn't be impeached for conduct committed while he was in office doesn't make sense. I mean, why would the Constitution include the impeachment power at all if the criminal justice system serves as a suitable alternative once a president leaves office? It wouldn't. Impeachment is a remedy separate and apart from the criminal justice system, and for good reason. The presidency, I mean, it comes with special powers, extraordinary powers, not bestowed on ordinary citizens. And if those powers are abused, they can cause great damage to our country and they have to be dealt with in a separate forum. This forum. And it would be unwise to suggest that going forward, the only appropriate response to constitutional offenses committed by a president are criminal charges when the president returns to private life. That's not the kind of Political system any of us want. And it's not the kind of constitutional system the framers intended. Second, it is true. We haven't cited criminal statutes establishing elements of incitement because, again, this isn't a criminal trial, it's not a criminal case. President Trump is charged with a constitutional offense, and you are tasked with determining whether or not he committed that high crime as understood by our framers. So the relevant question, which President Trump's lawyers would have you ignore, is would our framers have considered a president inciting a violent mob to attack our government while seeking to stop the certification of our elections, would they have considered that an impeachable offense? Who among us, who among us really thinks the answer to that question is no? Third, due process. So just to be absolutely clear the House with the sole power of impeachment determines what the process looks like in the House and the Senate does the same for the trial. During this trial, the president has counsel. They've argued very uh, vigorously on his behalf. We had a full presentation of evidence, adversarial presentations, motions. The president was invited to testify. He declined. The president was invited to provide exculpatory evidence. He declined. You can't claim there's no due process when you won't participate in the process. And we know this case isn't one that requires a complicated legal analysis. You all, you lived it. The managers and I, we lived it. Our country lived it. The president, in public view, right out in the open, incited a violent mob. A mob that temporarily, at least, stopped us from certifying an election. If there were ever an exigent circumstance, this is it. Number four. We all know that President Trump's defense as we predicted, uh, spent a lot of time, a whole lot of time comparing his conduct to uh, other politicians using words like fight. Of course, you saw the hours of uh, video. As I said on Thursday, we trust you to know the difference because what you will not find in those video montages that they showed you Is any of those speeches, those remarks, culminating in a violent insurrection on our nation's capital? That's the difference. The president spent months inflaming his supporters to believe that the election had been stolen from him, from them, which was not true. He summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and when the violence erupted, he did nothing to stop it, instead inciting it further. Senators, all of these arguments offered by the president have one fundamental thing in common. One. They have nothing to do with whether or not, factually, whether or not, president incited this attack. They've given you a lot of distractions so they don't have to defend what happened here on that terrible day. And they do that because they believe those distractions are going to work. That you'll ignore the president's conduct instead of confronting it. I think they're wrong. Some of you know this already. I'm the youngest member of our manager team by quite a few years. Um, So perhaps, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps I'm a bit uh, naive, but I just don't believe that. I really don't. I don't believe their effort is going to work. And here is why. Because I know what this body is capable of. I may not have witnessed it, But I've read about it in the history books. I've seen the C-SPAN footage. Archives, sometimes we've watched them for hours. And yes, I've actually done that. And the history of our country in those books and in those tapes, the history of this country has been defined right here on this floor. The 13th Amendment, the amendment abolishing slavery, was passed in this very room. In this room, not figuratively, literally, where you all sit and where I stand. In 1964, this body, with the help of senators like John Sherman Cooper and so many others, this body secured passage of the Civil Rights Act. We made the decision to enter World War II from this chamber. We've certainly had our struggles, but we've always risen to the occasion when it mattered the most, not by ignoring injustice or cowering to bullies and threats, but by doing the right thing, by trying to do the right thing. And that's why so many nations around the world aspire to be like America. They stand up to dictators and autocrats and tyrants because America is a guiding light for them, a North Star. They do so, they look to us because we have been a guiding light, a north star in these moments. Because the people who sat in your chairs, when confronted with choices that define us, rose to the occasion. I want to offer one more example of a decision made in this room by this body that resonated with me. The first day I stood up in this trial, I mentioned that I was the son of immigrants, like many of you, and many senators graciously approached me after my presentation uh, and asked me where my parents were from. I told those who asked that my folks were from uh, East Africa. Uh, In 1986, 1986, this body considered a bill to override President Reagan's veto of legislation imposing sanctions on South Africa during apartheid. Two senators who sit in this room, one Democrat and one Republican, voted to override that veto. That vote was not about gaining political favor. And in fact, it was made despite potentially losing political favor. And I have to imagine that that vote was cast like the decisions before it because there are moments that transcend party politics and that require us to put country above our party because the consequences of not doing so are just too great. Senators, this is one of those moments. Many folks uh, who are watching today's proceedings may not know this, but House members like me and Lead Manager Raskin, our fellow managers, we're not allowed on the Senate floor uh, without express permission. No one is. Certainly the Senators are aware of that. This floor is sacred. It's one of the reasons why I, like so many of you, was so offended to see it desecrated by that mob. To see those insurrectionists diminishing and devaluing and disrespecting these hallowed halls that my whole life I have held in such awe. Because of those rules that uh, I just mentioned, this will be the only time I have the privilege to stand before you like this. When the trial's over, I'll go back to being uh, not an impeachment manager, but back to being uh, just a House member. The trial will end, and we'll resume our lives and our work. But for some, there will be no end, no end to the pain of what happened on January 6th. The officers who struggled to recover from the injuries they sustained to protect us, they struggle to recover today. The families who continue to mourn those who they lost on that terrible, tragic day I was, I was struck yesterday uh, by uh, defense counsel's continued references to hate. One of my favorite quotes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's one that has sustained me during times of adversity, I suspect it sustained some of you, is that I've decided to stick with love, that hate is too great a burden to bear. trial is not born from hatred. Far from it. it's born from love of country, our country, our desire to maintain it, our desire to see America at its best. And in those moments that I spoke of, civil rights act, so much more We remember those moments because they helped define and enshrine America at its best. I firmly believe that our certification of the Electoral College votes in the early hours of January 7th, our refusal to let our republic be threatened and taken down by a violent mob, will go down in history as one of those moments, too. And I believe that this body can rise to the occasion once again today.